Welcome to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour, and we do love happy hour and the clinking of glasses and cheers to all you fabulous women who are fully living your lives at every age and every stage. And here's the best news, every hour is happy hour. So whether you clink cheers with your coffee mug or your afternoon cappuccino, remember as the song says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode. Cheers, tomatoes, and welcome back to The Three Tomatoes Happy Hour Podcast. I'm Kim Selby, your host today, and I'm the San Francisco editor of the Three Tomatoes newsletter. Now, we have a treat for you today as our guest is award-winning journalist and author, applause, applause, Stephen Petro. I hope <laughs> I pronounced that name right. Uh, best known for Washington Post and New York Times essays on aging, that's us, health and civility, which is very important because manners are important. He's also an opinion columnist for USA Today, and his TED Talk, Three Ways to Practice Civility, has been viewed nearly two million times. Welcome, Stephen. Kim, it is my pleasure. I feel like you're my twin. <laughs> we are very close in age, so yes. <laughs> well, and in interest of everybody, we had a little pre-chat before we turned on the uh, recording device, so uh, yeah. yeah. Hello. <laughs> So the reason that the primary reason you're here is to talk about your new book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. <laughs> the title just <laughs> makes that me title, laugh. That title, what can I say? <laughs> when I, when I, this book was born of a New York Times column that was called The Much Less Controversial Things I Will Do Differently When I Get Old. Um, but when, when it sort of became a book, it took on a little bit of a um, sassier, smart ass, um, whatever kind of a life. And, uh, and it wound up with that title, which I would say uh, three quarters of readers really like because they understand it's, um, it's snarky and sarcastic, but the book itself is loving. And a quarter of people who read it, they hate it. You know what? Then they're not the ones that need to read this, right? Well, I... Oh, maybe they do need to read it. Maybe because... they do because I think one of the things I'm I'm trying to do in this book, but maybe I should we should talk tell people what the book is about <laughs> yes. before I kind of jump all the way into that. Um, should I should I do that, Kim? Go ahead. You can talk about the the title, but see, I just have to say that I wouldn't have. Well, I would have read that column too. Things I would do differently, but this really appeals to my sassy side. Stupid things I won't do because everybody knows that. But yeah, talk about how you got into this book and what prompted you to actually write it. Yeah, so I guess I was always a smart aleck, and I was the eldest of three in my family. And I think it was a little bit after I turned fifty, and my parents were sort of in their in their mid seventies. I thought, well, I'm going to do this next chapter better than they are too. And so you know, they were aging and I was there taking notes, being like the little <laughs> spy, snitch, whatever. And you know, when my mom wouldn't pick up the throw rugs because she loved them, even though my dad was tripping over them, that went on my list. Um, when my dad refused to get a hearing aid when he couldn't hear anybody, but he blamed all of us for not speaking loud enough, that went on my list. And 
I probably wound up with a hundred things on this list. And then because I often talk about personal things in my, in my newspaper columns, I did that column for the New York Times, things I will do differently. And what really surprised me was even with that headline, it was on the most popular, most read list for about two weeks. And then people started sending me their own lists. So I realized there was like a whole army of snitch spies like me, um, which is not actually the point because all of us, it seemed, were really trying to take notes that we could kind of make a pledge to ourselves how we would do things differently when, when our time comes. And our time comes much more quickly than, than we realize. And that, that was one of the lessons that I learned just as I was finishing the book. So after I had the list and after that, that Times piece was published, um, the idea was given, maybe this should be a book. And that's how it became a book. Well, it is very poignant. And you go into some very personal stories of your own with your parents. And I think that that is what is going to really touch people or already has touched people at their core because everybody has been through something like that. Well, I also felt um, because I'm not a really bad person, I think, and I'm not only a smart ass that um, I couldn't just tell stories about my parents and about other elders that I knew. I had to, I had to put myself into this. I had to make myself vulnerable. And so there, you know, there, there are plenty of um, stories about me in here too. And um, you know, how I have not been compliant with taking my medication just as my dad you know, was not and how I had real problems accepting my mother's dementia and was um, you know, kind of a, an, an unkind person especially for someone who is, um, you know, writes about civility and did a TED talk about civility. So I had things to learn and, and I wrote about them. I wrote about them too. That must've been extremely cathartic as well. Um, painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was honestly, it was painful for me to read. And I'll tell you, this is not about being, but I lost my parents when I was young. I mean, my mom, I was 22, my dad, I was 28. So I didn't experience, you know, what you and other people have experienced, my friends now are experiencing, but my dad died of a heart attack. My mom died of cancer. So I did get to see a little bit of that demise, but I never got to experience that dementia that you write about that so many elderly people suffer through and from, but I still find myself really emotional when I was reading this. It was, it was very heart-wrenching. And then you bring it back and you make us laugh. And what could be better in a book than to experience the range of emotions? So I just want to thank you for being so vulnerable. Buzz, thank you. And my co-writer would love, or I would love for you to say, and for being so funny, because she and I, we always argue over who is the funniest. And uh, I mean, together, um, she, she really helped my voice here. But I thought it was just so important to bring humor to these topics. I've read so many of the books about aging and my God, if they're not dreary, you know, they're upsetting, they're painful, but we need to talk about these topics. We need to talk about aging and disability and sexual um, dysfunction and coloring our hair or not. And, <laughs> um, uh, so, and I say that we're both naturals right now. Yes, we are. We're, we're both um, silver whatevers. But so I did try to bring humor and, um, and I, what's been gratifying is readers in the, last, in the last couple of weeks, couple of months since the book has been out, you know, have told me that humor has helped us come closer to these topics and to begin to talk within our own families about some of these challenging um, conversations. Yeah, that's true. You are definitely opening eyes 
hearts, souls, and laughter. It is funny. I particularly love the one about the hair, the hair coloring. That was great. That was great. And it's interesting. I have a lot of favorite paragraph or I'm sorry, not paragraph chapters of my mm-hmm. own, but I wonder what, do you have one that sticks out or two chapters that you want to talk a little bit about? Um, sure, I do. And um, I don't know, do I have time to, to read a, a short passage? Yes, yes, that would be great. I was going to recommend that. Okay, we didn't, we didn't talk about that. Before. No, we didn't, but you know, whatever. No, because I love your little intros and outros. <laughs> Well, so, you know, let me, um, let me start with um, the one about hair. <laughs> and, the, and I'll tell, I'll t- you know this because you've read the book, but the book kind of has an arc. It starts with stupid things I won't do today, stupid things I won't do tomorrow, and then stupid things I won't do at the quote unquote, the end. So they start off um, um, perhaps a little bit more um, superficial, and then they get a little bit weightier. And so, um, so this first one, uh, the first chapter is, I won't color my hair, even if it worked for Diane Sawyer. And uh, so uh, it starts off, for years I'd been a patient of a noted dermatologist whom I knew to be 20 years older than me. He was pushing 50 when I first met him. And what I remember is this, he was very kind, he was very skilled, and he had completely salt and pepper hair. And, um, and suddenly after 10 years, he appeared at my annual appointment with his hair dyed jet black. And then whenever I saw him after that, I wondered who had given him such terrible advice? Where were his loved ones? Why had they not staged an intervention? <laughs> and uh, I vowed never to let that happen to me. Well, that was a vow that I was not able to keep. So. Um, uh, as I approached 50, uh, my hair, I now say with embarrassment, had become my armor, my shield, and frankly, the most effective camouflage concealing my age. And I owe this strategy to Diane Sawyer. And um, so what happened was that, um, well, I'll just continue reading it here. So Stephen and Diane doesn't have quite the same ring as it does um, John Cougar. Stephen and Diane doesn't have quite the same ring to it as John Cougar Mellencamp's Jack and Diane, but I was co-hosting a benefit with the platinum blonde journalist who once upon a time had won the junior Miss Pageant when she gave me some unsolicited advice. Anchors don't get older, they just get blonder. And actually, Diane Sawyer, like me, started life as a brunette. But as one Hollywood hairstylist wrote in a blog post, Diane Sawyer's big break came about when she changed her natural ash brown hair to a glamorous honey blonde and the rest is history. So I'll just uh, tell you what happened after that. I was going to make a video. I decided to take her advice. I went to um, my friend Molly's hair colorist and he said, oh, I can take out about a third of that gray. No one will ever notice and will wash out when you want. 30 minutes later, I look like a banana. You know, it's, it's probably is Diane Sawyer's color, but it's not my color. And he says to me, but it matches your eyebrows. And I don't even have eyebrows. And it's a, yeah, really, that was not my goal. So I tried to get it off and out. And I went to a color correction specialist in Manhattan with some pictures of my fake hair, because that wasn't really my original hair color. Anyway, she like hand painted me to look like a reasonable facsimile of my fake self. This chapter is all about the importance of 
coming to terms with your authenticity, whatever that is for you. And um, so at that point, I let go of hair dye and hair jobs and um, you know, began some process of self-acceptance self of getting older. And um, so I think the real story is here, um, don't color your hair unless you can go to Diane Sawyer's hair colorist. <laughs> Well, there are way too many of us who can relate to that. And particularly women, obviously, I don't know why more men don't do it. I know men who do. Mm -hmm. and, and sadly, it seems to be more obvious when men dye their hair, like your banana experience. But I think this pandemic has brought many of us to our roots, so to speak. Yes, very well said. <laughs> Well, such, such a great visual in that. And did chapter. you become an unblonde because of the pandemic? Pretty much, I did became an, become an unblonde. I yeah, because you know you go. I still looked blonde, but whatever. Yes, I did. I did. Thank you, COVID, for yeah. well, whatever. Yeah. Uh, one of the chapters that okay. Well, I've heard this term recently. I won't join the organ recital. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, I am so sick of people spouting their ailments. I can't even tell you. I think it's such a good reminder to us. Yes, and for, for those who have not heard that phrase yet, it, is, it refers to the fact that when people of a certain age get together, we are apt to talk about not only aches and pains, but everything else that is going wrong with our bodies. And it just comes to dominate, you know, a cocktail hour, a dinner conversation. And the problem with that is, Kim, it's all these negative associations with getting older. There are sort of none of the positive ones. Oh, well, I feel like I'm more experienced or I had more wisdom in this. And in the research I did for the book and, and, and as a health and science columnist for the Washington Post, I learned that these negative associations with being older, they actually, they hurt our health. We're more likely to become sick. We're more likely to have mental health problems and we're more likely to have shorter lives. So part of what I'm, you know, part of why I'm saying stop this organ recital is we want to retrain our brains to, to begin to think more positively about what it means to be um, you know, over 50. And, um, and that will not only make us feel better, we will, we will live longer. So. I, I can't agree with you more. The mind is so powerful. And if we just list our ailments top to bottom, what do you think we're going to get more of? Ailments top to bottom, right? And, um, you know, and when other people listen to us, and especially, you know, younger people, they go, yeah, these old people, they're ill, they're sick. And, you know, another theme of the book is getting older is one thing. Becoming ill is a separate thing. In our culture, we've kind of mixed them and they're really distinct and we should, we should not be confusing them. Absolutely. And you know, because you were diagnosed with cancer at a very young age. So you had to go through what so many people go through in their elder life at a young age. And that must have colored your perception of life completely. Well, I was 26 when I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And that, that was kind of young. And um, it was tough. You know, it, it was tough. You know, in many ways, it did color the rest of my life. And um, for the most part after, um, after treatment in, in some very positive ways, because I did, um, I did gain a lot of perspective on what matters to me, I think earlier on than I might have. You know, at 26, I, I can look back at that guy and say, man, he thought he was smart, but he was a jerk. 
<laughs> things came really easily to him and I had excelled at school but I had no coping skills for having an illness or for being dependent or for being afraid I might die and so um so I did I did learn those lessons from many other people you know who were going through similar situations and you know in, in terms of um this book and aging we're all going through this together and I hope that we can sort of come together and um and share the positive aspects of this and um you know and redefine ourselves that way I think that's really important. I interviewed um, Richard Leiter, who wrote a book. Also, he used the term organ recital in it. Now, what's the, you know, the brain gets, you do forget. And, you know, as much as I'd like to say that I won't forget things, I do forget things, you know, that's, that's, it happens to us, right? And so there's nothing wrong with that. You just, you just have to be, I think, being authentic and open about the fact, oh, yeah, I can't remember that right now. I mean, if, unless I have a list of index cards next to me about all the things in my life, I can't remember. But let's talk about some of those other chapters. One of the ones about dementia, uh, I won't be unkind to those with dementia. I, I think that's very powerful. I have studied the art of improv Mm -hmm. in depth and for many years I love improv and I watched a TED talk on how important it is to use improv when dealing with those with dementia and accepting what they are saying and seeing and you really did that in your chapter eventually mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that chapter I won't be unkind to those with dementia because I think that's so important I'm happy to, and then when I'm done, you have to tell me how the improv fits in because I'm not exactly seeing that to start off with. But um, yeah, I, um, it was before my mother was diagnosed with dementia. And I remember this day, I was in her, in her house and there I was standing next to her and the phone rang and it was for me. And I heard my, Holly, my friend Holly say, may I speak with Stephen? And my mom said, he's not here. And, I was, and then she just hung up the phone. And I was like, mom, I'm right here. Um, and I was a little bit um, sharper than that because I was, I was aggravated and I didn't, I didn't know she had, she had an ailment. And, but I remember she looked at me just puzzled, like, who are you? And um, that, was, that was frightening. And that was sort of the first sign. And, over time, though, I came to realize you know, not only did she have um, you know, this condition, but I needed to open my heart and I needed to embrace her and not judge her. And in many ways, I learned that from a dog that I had, um, a Jack Russell Terrier who was 17. You know, and maybe things you know happened for a reason. That that beautiful dog developed dementia, and she would be. I was in this house. She would be in the corner wailing, not able to get out of the corner and I would have to go hold her and comfort her. And I, so I took those lessons back to, um, to my mom and, um, you know, it made a big difference for me. And I think it made a big, a big difference for her too. Um, she could feel it even if she couldn't um, completely understand it. Well, the, and improv, the, the reason that improv helps with dementia and Alzheimer's patients is that you are just saying yes and to them. And okay. that's what you did. That's what it is. Just the first rule of improv. Yes. And so you did that with your mom after that first experience. Hey, wait a minute. I'm not, I mean, because the first experience of that has got to be mind boggling, blowing the whole thing. 
because you don't think it's going to happen to your parents. Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I yeah. remember I'd argue with her. She would say it's Wednesday, but I knew it was Saturday. And and all you have to do is say, you're right, mom. Because exactly. what does it matter, right? It didn't matter. Yeah. I think it's really important. And you, you do say that a couple of the other things. Well, so much of this book is going to ring true to every, as I said, to every person. But it's such a great reminder to ourselves as we get older. But you also, it's such a legacy to leave to children's nieces, nephews, for them to read so that they can you know, realize what you are going through. Staying flexible. I see this in older people a lot. They are insistent on their routines. Mm -hmm. And I love how you describe that you are not going to go through rituals. And one of the things we all know is the story repeaters. We all yeah. tend to do it, even at our young age in our 60s, right? Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, there is a chapter that I won't, you know, I won't tell a story a hundred times or more. And, you know, I encourage people to, you know, sort of develop systems with their loved ones. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing this the, the second or third time, you know, give me a signal, you know, two fingers or three fingers, you know, help, help me out. But uh, how many times have we heard people say, I'm sure you've heard this story before, and then they go on and do it. But that's not the only point of that chapter. The other point is, and I remember this, you know, from my dad. He had he had been a journalist also, and um, in his um, late thirties or early forties, he went on this great expedition to the Arctic on a Coast Guard cutter, and the Russians were there, and it was a big, and there were polar bears, and he always told this story throughout his life because it really embodied who who he was, and and as he got older. He was less that person, but when he told that story, he reminded all of us that, yes, dad had once been this courageous adventurer who wrestled with polar bears in the Arctic. And so, um, so in that way, they are important to, um, you know, to tell and, to, um, and for us to listen to um, and, not, and not to get aggravated, which um, seems to be the natural reaction. Yeah, that's really important. It's it's up to us to not get aggravated. And that's a lesson to me because even though we are on the older side, you know, my husband has older relatives and one of them does tell the same story all the time, you know, and I kind of roll my eyes and think, oh, this book just made me reframe that, mm -hmm. you know? You know, I know you're a yoga practitioner and I've, um, I've been practicing meditation for, for a while infrequently, sometimes more frequently recently. And one of the things that I have, one of the techniques that I've learned is something that um, Tara Brock calls um, the sacred pause. And so when you're faced with any kind of situation, it's like, take a breath, just take a moment before you say what you're gonna say, before you respond. And sometimes you will visualize even there's a choice. I can do this or I can do that. And then hopefully you can choose the one that's either a little bit more kinder or more loving rather than sort of the intuitive um, reflex that you might've had or that I might've had, I, I need to own that. Yeah, I love that, that's very powerful. In fact, it come harkens back to the days when they would say count to 10 before you speak, if you are angry. Mm -hmm. I like it better in the frame of meditation, take a pause, a sacred pause, whatever it is. That is really, really meaningful and powerful. Yeah, thank you. And we all need to remember that. Oh, well, okay. So before we wrap up, there are just so many good nuggets. I don't want to leave you. I know. 
Okay, I won't stop believing in magic. Mm, I love that. Tell us your story about the magic. So this goes back to when I had cancer and in my, in my 20s. And I did all the things that science wanted me to and all the things that my doctor said. I'm very compliant. And let me just say for the record, I, I'm a 100% science person. Um, but a very good friend of mine gave me, I wish I had it here, um, this bunny called the fairy god bunny. And this was back before um, we talked about um, non-binary people and, and things. So he, they, she had a tutu and a wand and so on. But um, Cynthia told me this, this bunny was imbued with magic and would bring joy and delight um, to me. And I decided to believe that. Um, and I would carry I would carry that silly little bunny with me to the doctor, and they would say, "You're a 26 year old man. You know why? Why aren't you just letting the chemotherapy do its work?" And I was like, "You know, we need we need a little magic. We need you know, sort of going beyond that. We need to kind of keep the sense of wonder in our lives um, that we had more when we were younger, when we were kids. The way we looked at the world, the ability to be." surprised and pleased and um, you know and not always come into situations with no or low expectations so um, so you know that's that's where that came from and um, you know it has served me and, and and many others that I know well and that that bunny has lived with others who have faced various challenges over the years and, and um, they are with someone right now oh well I know it's not as you know like some of the other chapters on aging. But I do think that having something to believe in, you know, having something, who cares? I mean, so who cares if it's not scientifically based, right? But there are so many studies that I've read, don't ask me to repeat them because, you know, the age, but yeah. about how believing in something outside of ourselves, outside of what we can see, really can help us with our moods, with our positivity, you know, get rid of depression with anxiety. So I like that bunny, the fairy god bunny. Well, and there are there are studies quoted in the book. So <laughs> you know, the reason I said I, you know, I'm an advocate for science is just sort of reference to what's going on with anti-vaccination anti um, efforts these days. So that's, that's my concern. Got it. Oh yeah. Well, I'm not gonna use a bunny instead of a vaccine. Just saying. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> In fact, I think sign me up for that third one. It's coming soon. I know. <laughs> well, Stephen, I am so grateful for your time here today to talk about your book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Because even if we do end up doing some of them, hopefully we are more aware of them when we are telling our story for the thousandth time, you know, whatever it is. Awareness is, is on the road to change. And so that's all I can hope for is that we become a little bit more aware of the decisions we can make as we're on this um, journey and um, that we make better ones. And um, that's my wish for you, Kim. Thank you. Me too. But I also really want everybody to give it to the people who are going to be taking care of them in later years. That is really important. Yes. And um, I've talked to um, sort of mother-daughter, father-daughter um, couples, so to speak, and they've been reading the book together. And it's really produced some, some wonderful conversations um, enlightening each other about lots of these challenges and, and joys. 
Yeah, that's great. We have to remember that there are joy. There is joy that comes out of the challenges. And the book is written with such humor and insight and love. Really, Stephen, you can just tell the love that you had for your parents when you read the stories and how you phrase your interactions with them. It's really, it's a really great book. I did. I read it cover to cover. Have it right here. Dog-eared. Love it. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And Tomatoes, thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next time.